0: Just as a kind of a recap and to build on a recap here, in in chapter 8, Paul began to address this question that the Corinthians had or this issue that they had with um, eating uh, meat sacrificed to idols in a temple. So in Poseidon's temple, in Aphrodite's temple, uh, this was a huge part of life in ancient um, Corinth and in that Area in the Greco Roman world, so much of life centered around these cultic meals. Let's say you have a friend who is celebrating the birth of a new child and they want to celebrate, they want to thank their God. What would they do? They would invite everybody over to the temple of their God, they would bring an animal sacrifice to that God, invite you to eat together with them in, in participating in, in this sacrifice to this God. And that would take place in the temple. Um, if somebody got married and they wanted to celebrate, if somebody had a, a need for healing and they, they wanted to implore their God, they would invite their friends to that temple. They would sacrifice to that God and eat together. And this was, so this was a huge part of social life in ancient Corinth. This was a big deal. So, um, The Corinthians wanted to continue going to these things, and they said that, well, we know that these are not real gods Poseidon or Aphrodite. It's okay, we have knowledge. Paul said, no, it's not okay. Um, We need to give up our rights for the sake of other brothers and sisters. There are many people who grew up in Corinth who grew up going to these temple feasts, who grew up worshiping these gods as they were eating. And that is just so deeply entwined in who they are that if they look at you, they see you going and participating in this temple meal, they're going to be emboldened to go as well. They say, hey, well, he's going. I guess it's okay. I should go as well. I can go do that. I can go hang out with my friends. But because they were so deeply entwined in that worship of that god, they end up committing idolatry in their hearts. That was what was happening. Paul says, no, give up your rights. Give up this desire of yours to go and eat in the temple. And then in chapter nine, he shows them how he's walking the talk in his own life. Basically, he's saying, speaking of giving up rights, this is not something I'm just telling you to do, but it's something I do in my life as well. It's something that is an active part of my life. For example, I should be receiving financial support from you Corinthians. I'm an apostle. I planted this church. I am laboring for this church. But because there are people in Corinth who are preachers, who are peddling the word of God for profit, I don't want anybody to think that I may be doing that. So I am going to have a side hustle. I'm going to make tents and sell them to support myself just so that nobody thinks that the gospel is about money. Paul gave up his own rights for the sake of reaching other people. And he challenged and encouraged the Corinthians to do that as well. And now here in chapter 10, he is going deeper. He is going beneath the surface of the Corinthian desire to go to the temple of Aphrodite or Poseidon or Bacchus or or any of these other gods, there's something deeper there. So he's now gonna get to the real heart of the matter, the real meat of the issue here about what's going on. So that's what chapter 10 is. That's what we're gonna look at verses one through 14. But before we start in chapter 10, I just wanna read again the end of chapter nine, verses 24 to 27. Um, because this is like a transition paragraph here. Last week, I said that these verses serve two purposes. One, it's an exhortation. Two, second, it's a warning. I focused mostly on the exhortation, but I want to talk about the warning a little bit today. What What was happening here? Let me read this again. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So the exhortation part of this, if you were here last week, what I was talking about is how Paul was saying, hey, in Christian life, live your Christian life like it's a race and as if only one person can win the prize. Just like in the Isthmus Isthmus Games, Isthmus Games that take place near Corinth every two years. Only one person gets the prize. Paul's not saying that Christian life is a competition. He's not saying that only one person is gonna make it to heaven, so you better run fast. His point there was that live in such a way as if only one person wins the prize. Run that hard for Jesus. Don't treat Christian life like a pass-fail exam. As long as I make it into heaven, I'm okay. No, run with all of your heart. And that means what rights? I will surrender all my rights Because I am a slave of Christ. I will surrender all of my rights, whether it's eating meat in the temples or whether it's receiving financial support or this or that for the sake of the gospel going forth. I will run, run, run. That's what Paul was saying to do. Surrender those rights and run after the Lord for the sake of as many people as possible coming to know Christ. The gospel of God advancing. But here's the second part. There was also a warning here. He said, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So there's a warning here as well. Paul is saying you can live, quote unquote, Christian life in such a way that you may think you are participating in the race but at the end of the day, you get disqualified. At the end of the day, you get disqualified. You, you run the New York City Marathon, 26.2 miles. Man, it felt good. Man, I won the marathon. At the end of the day, they show you the video recording of you hopping in the uh, subway at 23rd Street and taking it a couple of stops and getting out and continuing to run the race. They say, no, you're Disqualified. Those 24.2 miles you ran that you, 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 were, you, were, you were running and you were laboring to do, it doesn't matter. You got disqualified because you didn't compete according to the rules. Paul's saying that disqualification is a real danger. That you can live what you think is a Christian life. And as Jesus said in the gospels, at the end of the day, you appear before God and God says, I never knew you. But, but, but God, didn't we heal the sick and cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do all these amazing things? And God says, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. It is possible to live a life where you think that you are a Christian and it turns out at the end that you were not and you are disqualified. So Paul says, "This this is a serious thing. And now in chapter 10, he begins to go into what that disqualification could look like, why you could get disqualified as a Christian. And and it's connected to the Corinthians too, and we'll see how. So I'm gonna read first the whole 14 verses, and then we'll come back around. He says this, for, the connection here with the end of chapter nine, for, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Um, Here in in these uh, verses, Uh, Paul brings up to the Corinthians the experiences of the Israelites in the Old Testament after they had been delivered from slavery in Egypt, the 40 years they had spent out there in the desert. And um, if I could characterize that time, I would say that that was an incredibly supernatural period of time. When we look at the Israelites and, and, and what happened, What things did they experience when they were out there? It says that they were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. What is Paul talking about there? He's saying that when the Israelites, as you may know from the Bible, or even if you don't, maybe you've watched Prince of Egypt, when they came out of Egypt and then Pharaoh changed his mind and said, we've let our slaves go, and he chased the Israelites with his army. And then the Israelites saw the the, the Egyptians coming after them and then, They had nowhere to go because the Egyptians were coming this way. And then the Red Sea, a vast body of water, was on this side of them. And they said, we're done for. We're done for. We're in big trouble here. And what happened? God told Moses to part the Red Sea, right? To stick out his staff. And when he stuck out his staff, the Red Sea parted. And the walls of water were on the left and on the right. And the ground became dry. And the Israelites started going through the Red Sea on dry ground. And now Pharaoh and his chariots began to chase them into the Red Sea, which is bonkers if you ask me, but they did that. Their hearts were so hard. And now they probably could have easily caught up to the Israelites if it weren't for the fact that God in, in the form of a pillar of cloud came in between the Israelites and the Egyptians. So, so the Egyptians were like racing after the Israelites and God came in this big cloud and said, "Ho, hold up, hold up. And the Egyptians couldn't get close to the Israelites until the Israelites came out of the other side of the Red Sea and then the cloud moved out of the Red Sea and then the water came back down and the Egyptians were drowned in the Red Sea. And they experienced incredible supernatural things, this spiritual food and spiritual drink when they're in the wilderness, when they're in the desert. The spiritual food was manna. Manna, they had no food out there, but every day when they woke up, there were these flakes on the ground that they would collect, and they could boil it, they could bake it, they could fry it, and they could eat it. It was called manna. God gave them food in the wilderness for 40 years. That's why Paul calls it spiritual food, because it was a supernaturally given food. And also spiritual drink, because um, if you have read the Exodus account, there were times when they had no water, and God literally gave them water out of a place where water could not come out of a rock. Not out of a huge cactus, You can get liquid out of that, but out of a rock, the driest place, water came out of there. When Moses spoke to the rock, and at times when Moses disobediently struck the rock, water came out of the rock. And apparently, again and again and again, God gave the Israelites water from a rock. It was spiritual drink because it was supernaturally provided. Now... Uh, This is interesting language that Paul uses here. Why does he use it the way that he was? Particularly, why does he say baptized into Moses? Now, for any Christian, if you hear that, that's kind of startling because that's weird language for us. We say, no, no, nobody's baptized into Moses. When we baptize people here on our stage in that tank of water, we baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and not Moses. We don't throw that in there. We, what's going on here? Why, why is Paul using this language? Well, because what he's saying is, in the Old Testament, the Israelites experienced a type of baptism, a type of baptism, if you will, if you will. because the Red Sea was a precursor. It foreshadowed baptism in Christ. We went from slavery to sin, Egypt. We crossed through the Red Sea, something impossible to do, and we came out the other side alive, right? The Red Sea, Pharaoh's army was drowned in there. The Israelites should have been drowned in there. Who was drowned in there? Christ. Christ was drowned in there. Christ died upon the cross so that we could cross from slavery to sin and be forgiven and come out on the other side with life. With life. It was a, a foreshadowing of what Jesus would do for us. And when we get baptized, that's what it symbolizes. Now, why did Paul say it this way? Because the Corinthians apparently were putting a lot of confidence in the fact that they had been baptized. In Paul's estimation, they were overly confident. Oh, I got baptized, so I'm good. Nothing can happen to me. Me and the Lord are good. Paul's saying, "Uh -uh uh-uh-uh. In the Old Testament, a whole group of people were baptized, so to speak, and none of them made it into the promised land except Joshua Caleb what else were the Corinthians putting their confidence in it seemed like they were putting it in communion as long as I take the Lord's Supper I'm good there's a spiritual protection there's some type of invincibility invulnerability that I experience because I come and I take the Lord's Supper Paul's saying uh-uh-uh in the Old Testament the Israelites they also had their bread and their drink their spiritual food and their spiritual drink the manna Water from the rock. How did they end up? Their bodies were overthrown in the wilderness. So, what was happening was it seemed like the Corinthians were placing a lot of confidence in certain things that they were doing externally in their lives. I was baptized, I take communion. Maybe other things that we see in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. I speak in tongues. I can prophesy. Uh, maybe in the fact that I have knowledge. I know that other gods are not real. I know that meat sacrifice to idols is nothing. I have knowledge. I've been baptized. I take communion. I speak in tongues. I prophesy. I have all of these different things going on. Paul's thing. The Israelites had a lot of great things going on. A lot of supernatural experiences. Yet none of them made it into the promised land. Look at the repetition here of the word all. All were under the cloud. All passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses. All ate the same spiritual food. All drank the same spiritual drink. All, 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 all. Paul's emphasizing all of them. They all had these great experiences, these external things that they relied upon. Yet most of them, God wasn't pleased with most of them. Now talk about an understatement. Two made it in, Joshua and Caleb. And the children, God, God, God didn't blame the children, but all the adults in the wilderness, millions of them, however many there were, they all fell out there, even though they ate manna, they drank water from a rock, and they crossed through the Red Sea. Paul is saying, be careful, Corinthians. You are overly reliant on certain things in your life, Yet that's what's happened to the Israelites, and none of them made it, they were disqualified. So, Paul says, Look, what took place, what happened to those Israelites in the desert, that was an example for us. In verse 11, he says it again Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, brothers and sisters. When we read the book of Exodus, when we read about what happened there, that wasn't just some story that happened to them. Oh, it stinks for them that they didn't make it into the promised land. That's a nice bedtime story I'll read to my kids when we read the Bible together. Paul's saying, this is for you. Yeah, God was doing something with them. God wanted them to learn something. But God also specifically said, make sure this is written down. Moses, write this down because there's a group of people in the year 2023 in Sunnyvale that are going to be in this room that need to know that these things also are an example for them, for you. Brothers and sisters, this is for you. God wants you to learn from the example of the Israelites. It's not just some... Bible story for the sake of knowledge. But this is meant for you as an example. Now, what's the key here? The key is this. This is the key to these verses. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Friends, this is the heart of the issue. This is the problem. The Israelites had had manna, had water from the rock, they crossed through the Red Sea. The Corinthians had a lot of things going for them, but the Israelites didn't make it because in spite of all of those supernatural experiences that they could count on, that they could hang their hat on, they desired evil in their hearts. They relied upon these external experiences, but they left the internal state of their heart unchecked and because of that disqualified none of them made it in Paul saying to the Corinthians as well you have all of those things you have baptism you have communion you speak in tongues but still do you desire evil in your heart brothers and sisters this is so important for us because isn't it true that, that all of us in maybe unspoken ways, we kind of have those things that we say, as long as I have these three, four, five, six things in my life, I feel okay about my relationship with God and how it can be easy, it can be easy to think we're okay with that and overlook the evil desires, the things that are underneath the surface. Well, I'm here, I go to church most Sundays, I, I grew up in a Christian home, I read my Bible, I give, I'm a I am I serve in different ways. Shouldn't that be okay? Check, 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 check. And it's easy to rely upon those things and ignore the desire for evil that is within our hearts. That's what happened with the Israelites. And Paul he he, he brings out four different examples here of desire for evil. The first one, he says, do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. What happened there? Moses went up to Mount Sinai to get the commandments from God. He was up there for a long time, 40 days. Israelites got anxious and nervous and told Aaron, make gods for us that will go before us. And what did Aaron do? Aaron made a a golden cow. A golden cow said, Israel, this is your God. Worship this. They committed idolatry so shortly after those incredible experiences that they had experienced. Brothers and sisters, is there, even in the midst of our reading the Bible, praying, coming to church, serving, is there the evil desire of idolatry in your heart, underneath the surface? And idolatry is anything that you worship more than God. For example, maybe you have the idol of other people's thoughts and opinions, what other people think of you. Maybe that's your idol. And that's what drives you to work so hard to be successful because you want people to view you in a certain way. Whether it's you're successful or you're smart or the school that you went to or that you're attractive or that you're a very smooth social person. We are driven by how people view us. Is there an idol of that image and what people think of you in your life? Do you find yourself feeling anxious or inhibited about your faith around others who don't know the Lord. And what you believe. What is that? Well, that's because you want them to view you as a certain way, in a certain way. You don't want them to think less of you because of your Christian or because they may think, "Oh, you're one of those fundamentalist Bible thumpers or something like that." So we hide our relationship with God. What is that? That's the idolatry of caring more about what people think of you more than what God thinks of you. That's an an evil desire. Your desire is to be approved of by society rather than being approved of by God. Maybe you have the idolatry of comfort. And, and, And so your desire is to amass wealth in order to not experience any type of discomfort in your life. Maybe you're allergic to hardship and suffering. Or maybe you get very irritable or easily angered when anybody encroaches upon your comfort. When somebody makes it difficult for you to do the things that you want, with your time and your schedule, you get easily irritated by that. Maybe there's an idol of comfort there. Maybe there's the idol of control in your life. And you can be controlling of your friends or of your spouse. Everything has to be so planned out. And there's nothing wrong with being a planner But do you get angry when people disrupt your plans? Do you get very inflexible because it creates this anxiety or a sense that you're not in control? Maybe it's the idol of control in your life rather than trusting that God is in control. Kids can become an idol as well. This is so true. Parents, listen up. Maybe some of us, we've gone from doing, being willing to do anything for God to doing anything for our kids. And while it's, it's great to want to love our kids and to do a lot of stuff for them, but sometimes wanting to do anything for our kids means doing anything for God goes in the back burner. I, I don't know if um, Pastor Susang shared this when he was here a few weeks ago guest speaking, but um, he, he, he told me, he's Korean, and he went to Korea recently during his sabbatical, and uh, he told me that uh, when he was there, he, he saw how, you know, Korea at one point was such a Christian nation, but now the whole young generation has been lost. The Young generation, people don't go to church. They have a negative view of church. And he was talking to a friend of his who was a pastor there and he was in youth ministry and this friend was pastoring for, I don't know, like 20 years or something or another. And, and he was asking him, why, why do you think this is? What what happened to this whole generation of people? And his friend said, well, this is is my opinion. My opinion is that we have all these churches here, all these kids who are brought to church, but when they hit high school and they start facing these um, college entrance exams, and in Korea, like in much of Asia, so much of your life rides on these exams. uh, What he saw was that even elders pastors, leaders in the church began telling their kids, it's okay, you don't have to go to church. Just stay home and study. And their thought was that they need to focus on this now, and once they get into college, once they graduate high school, and then they go to college, then they'll go back to church. Guess what happened? None of them went back to church. They lost an entire generation. See, not only can we disqualify ourselves if we make our kids our God, our idol, but we can actually lead our kids down the road of self disqualification as well. Because if they were taught that God church is secondary, when I get busy in life, what do you think they're going to do when they're in college and they get busy with the other things of life? And I thought that that was very, very insightful. See there, we can do all of these church things but there can still be idolatry, evil desire of idolatry within our hearts. Paul said, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. And now that, that account of the Old Testament was from the, the uh, account of Balak and Balaam. When the Israelites came out, a million people strong, and they were near the edge of Moab, The people of Moab got really nervous. Balak, the prince of Moab, was really nervous about the Israelites. He hired Balaam, who was a sorcerer type person, to come and to curse the Israelites. But if you remember that story, Balaam couldn't curse them because God told him, don't curse them. Balaam had this weird, he wasn't a believer in God, but somehow God spoke to him and and God told him, don't curse the Israelites. And every time Balaam opened his mouth, he blessed the Israelites again and again and again. That's what was happening. And so Balak is going crazy. He's pulling out his hair. He's so upset about this. He's like, get out of here, uh, Balam. But Balaam, before he leaves, he says, basically, this is what I think happened in the conversation. Balak, I can't curse them, but let me tell you what you can do. And, and what happened? From the story, the Moabites invited the Israelites over to a friendly meal to participate in their temple worship. The Israelites went over for this meal. Maybe they thought, well... Man, I saw a God part the Red Sea. We ain't going to worship this other God. But compared to manna? I'll take some steak? That sounds real good. They went over for this meal. They're eating. The Moabites are worshiping Baal. Israel's like, no, 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 no. We'll just focus on our food. And then what happens at one point during this worship? um, Temple cult prostitutes come out. And the Moabite men begin engaging in a massive orgy as a part of this temple sacrifice. And then the Israelite men see this and they get involved and they commit sexual immorality. And thousands of them ended up dying that day as a result of the judgment of God. Similar to what was happening in the Corinthian church. If you remember earlier, Paul said, can you take the temple of God and unite it with a prostitute? The Corinthians were thinking, well, you know." Food for the stomach and the stomach for food. It's just physical body. I'm a spiritual being. It doesn't matter if I go to these meals. It doesn't matter if I sleep with a temple prostitute. It's just the physical stuff. I'm a spiritual person. Paul's saying, no, what happened to the Israelites? 23,000 of them died. They did not make it into the promised land. Isn't it so true, brothers and sisters? And this is so not just rampant in the world, but sexual morality can also be so present within the church that we can read our Bible, pray, come to church, even serve, yet at the same time, maybe there is fornication. Maybe you're in a relationship with somebody who's not your spouse and you're engaged sexually, and that's happening beneath the surface. Maybe there's an addiction to pornography in your life, which is so prevalent within the church as well, a secret addiction to that that nobody knows about, but when they look at you externally, you're doing all the things but there is this desire within you for something sinful. Or even lust, as Jesus said, do not even look lustfully as a woman because when you do, you commit sexually immorality with her in your heart. You commit adultery with her in your heart. But how many of us, while we're doing all the church things, let our lust go uncontrolled, what we look at or the thoughts in our mind. And Paul's saying, if there is that desire for evil there, do not overlook that the israelites died in the wilderness because of that he said in verse 9 we not must not put christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents and the israelites in this case they really really pushed the lord they really tested him at one point they were crying out against moses and against god and saying have you brought us out here to die there's no food there's no water out here have you brought us out here to die all there is is this worthless food, this manna. Can you hear the contradiction in that? There's no food here. Did he bring us out here to die? All there is is this worthless food. You know, it's like, it's really annoying, right? As a parent, when your kids say, oh, there's nothing to eat here, nothing to eat. The fridge is full of food, cabinets are full of food. Oh, you just mean you don't like anything I bought for you. Or the things I bought for you last time that you wanted, now you don't want to eat anymore. It makes me so mad, right? You know what I'm talking about? It makes me so mad. Oh, this, these Israelites, God, there's nothing to eat, nothing to drink. You just bring water out of a rock, that's all. It's just manna provided for us in the desert every day, that's all. They were testing God. Brothers and sisters, do you ever test God? Is there, is there ever anything in your heart where you say, God, if you really loved me, you would do blank. Fill in the blank. Oh, if you really loved me, you would heal that person in my family. How could you let them be sick? God, if you really loved me, why am I, I would be married by now. God, if you really loved me, why am I in this stinky job? Why don't you give me a better job? If you really love me, why don't you let me get into that school? If you really love me, God. And God's just like, oh yeah, if I really loved you, all, all I did was give my only son for you. Died on the cross for sin that was not his own, it was yours. And as a father, brokenhearted watching my son die upon the cross for you. Yeah, I don't love you. That's all I did for you. He provided manna in the wilderness, water from the rock. But these are others testing the Lord. Do we test the Lord? Is there that evil desire in our heart to look at all that God has done for us and to say, God, if you really loved me, you would do blank. Fourth and lastly here, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. It's not totally clear which specific act that they were talking about here that Paul was referring to in Exodus but one thing we do know is the Israelites grumbled and complained again and again and again and again they just had this complaining heart and complaining attitude and and I know that complaining can be so ubiquitous like in our lives right it just seems so natural like ah oh, this weather it stinks right oh my boss is so annoying and yeah you know like sometimes things are annoying Right, it's it's okay to call a 1-800 complaint number. Right, sometimes it's like you know your machine's not working. Right, you're complaining about that. That's okay. Right, when things go awry, but the problem is when we let those things become our God and take away our contentment, and we're no longer content. We're no longer able to say, you know what, God, even if everything in the world fell apart around me. I have your love. I have salvation in Christ. I'm a child of God. I have hope in the future. I can be content in any and every circumstance. I'll still call that 1-800 number when that machine needs to be fixed to make a complaint, but it's not taking away my contentment. I am rich in Christ no matter what I have. Or is that that evil desire there of making this world your way Or saying, God, you have not provided for me or you're not leading this world in the right way and I'm discontent. Is there that discontentment that led to the Israelites being destroyed by the destroyer and all of these things led to them not entering the promised land and being disqualified. Things beneath the surface, evil desire within their hearts. Paul says this happened to them as an example but it was written down for our instruction, for us. So, therefore, whenever you see the word therefore, I've heard preachers say this, you got to ask, what is it therefore? It's therefore a reason. So what is he saying here? Therefore, let anyone think, who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Paul is saying, be careful. Do you think you're standing? Do you think you're okay? Are you possibly putting your confidence in all these other things? And it's good to read the Bible. It's good to pray. It's good to come to church. Please keep doing those things. But are you ignoring the desire for evil that is underneath the surface? Are you thinking you're okay because you got these other things checked off? Please, brothers and sisters, take heed. Watch yourself. Check yourself. Lest you fall. Lest you be disqualified because of these evil desires that are unchecked and grow and grow and grow and one day lead to you walking away from the Lord or falling away from him in some way you know tragically a few weeks ago we saw the devastation in Turkey from that earthquake those earthquakes that took place they say over over at least 6000 buildings fell down 6000 Across ten provinces, collapsed in a moment. Why? Earthquakes that big have hit other places in the world and didn't result in that devastation, because things were not buildings were built with structural defects. They were built with structural, and they weren't addressed. They weren't fixed. There are issues where even if a building had a structural defect, the, the developer, the builder, could just pay a fine. And then it would be okay to live in and without fixing what was going on. So thousands and thousands of people looked at these buildings and said, oh, that'd be a nice building to rent a home in. Oh, that'd be a nice building to buy a condo in. That's a nice 10-story building. That's a nice 15-story building. I'll have a great view. And they lived in there totally unaware that they were living in a building with structural defects that at any moment when the earthquake comes, when the shaking comes, it could fall and result in tremendous loss of life. Brothers and sisters, Paul is saying, is that you? Is that you right now? Please, please ask yourself, examine your heart. Paul is saying, the checkbox is okay. Those things might be good, but examine your heart. Is there evil desire? Is there idolatry? Is there sexual immorality? Are you testing God? Are you discontent and complaining or any other number of things in your life that you're ignoring and sweeping under the rug so that you can keep going to that temple and eating that food and enjoying that party and sleeping with temple prostitutes? Are you ignoring all these other things so that you can keep doing those things? We all know, brothers and sisters, we see in the news again and again, it's so heartbreaking where we see stories of these ministers or celebrity pastors or people who are serving the Lord for 10, 20, 30 years, and then you discover secret sin, moral failure, and overnight their life falls apart and they they walk away from the ministry and everything is destroyed. And it doesn't have to be a celebrity pastor. It could be a friend of yours. It could be uh, anybody. It happens all the time because they thought they stood on their accomplishments or their name or their title. But they fell because they weren't paying attention to the evil desires of their heart. Now, God, through Paul here, gives us very encouraging good news. In verse 13, he says, But no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, this is a beloved verse of the church throughout the centuries. And and what this verse is saying is that, you know, there's nothing that you face there's no temptation to, to sin that you face that is so great, that is so supernatural, that is so de- demonic, that is so powerful that you can't overcome it. It just, it just doesn't exist um, because God is faithful and he will provide a way of escape. That word way of escape there, the, the imagery that, that comes out of the Greek is like, um, like an, imagine an army up in the mountains, trapped in the mountains. And then... Um, the the enemy is closing in and bombarding them and aircraft are coming in and and this army is trapped in mountains. They're like, oh no, oh no, we're in trouble. We're done for, what are we gonna do? And then they find this mountain pass, this way of escape where they can get out and, and they can get out of their situation and be saved. That's the imagery here. God is, Paul is saying that in every situation that you face, God is faithful He won't let you be tempted to a point where you can't handle it. It doesn't mean that it's going to be easy. There may be suffering. There may be much to endure as you go through those temptations, but you will be able to overcome. You will be able to say no to sin and say yes to God. God will provide that mountain pass. He will provide that way out. And he does this through Jesus Christ, through Jesus who died upon the cross for our sins. And it's filled us with the Holy Spirit so that we have the power to overcome any sin in our life through the presence of the Holy Spirit. If that's the case, brothers and sisters, why is it that so often we feel like it doesn't work? Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt that way in that situation where you're struggling with sin and you're like, God, I, I don't want to sin in this way anymore. I am that army trapped in the mountains. I'm being bombarded by Satan, by the world, by, by people around me. God, I, 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 want, I want to get out of this, but I feel like there is no way out. I feel like I can't overcome. And then I fall into sin again and again and again and again. And I feel hopeless. I feel like this isn't true. You ever felt that way? What do we do? with this verse. What sense do we make of this? This is why anybody who memorizes this verse, maybe some of you have this memorized or kind of know it in your heart somewhat, you should never memorize this verse alone. You have to memorize verse 14 with it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. What is What is Paul saying here? Paul is saying, look, any situation you face in your life, any temptation that comes, God, the power of the Holy Spirit is available to you to overcome, to not sin. However, however, if you choose to remain in that place of idolatry, Of whatever it may be whatever evil desire is there you choose to remain there then of course this is not going to work of course you're going to keep falling again and again and again look look at what look at what paul is saying think about this to the corinthians here it it can be argued that all four of the examples of the israelites sinning in the desert are related to the corinthians and them going to temple worship he talked about idolatry Corinthians, stop going to the temple worship and participating in this idolatry. Paul said sexual morality brought the Israelites down. Corinthians, you can't hang out in that temple and then the prostitutes come out and you engage in prostitution, sexual morality, you think it's just physical? You can't do that. Then Paul, talk, Paul talked about putting the Lord to the test like the Israelites did. Corinthians, are you testing God? You think you could just do that? You're gonna be okay? Go there, eat that food in the temple, engage in sexual immorality, and you think you're going to be okay? You're testing God. And maybe even the fourth one, complaining. Maybe them complaining against Paul about him taking away, wanting to take away their quote-unquote right to go and remain in the temple and participate in these cultic meals. You see see, see what's happening here? Paul's saying, Corinthians, hey, if that's you, if you're going to obstinately just in so stubbornly say, no, Paul, I'm going to go and eat that food, hang out with my friends. I don't care if I stumble my brothers. They should know. They should have knowledge. I'm going to have sex with a prostitute. I don't care. God's going to save me out of this because I take communion, because I've been baptized, because I speak in tongues. Paul says, you're ridiculous. He says, you're ridiculous. The temptation will overcome you. It will overcome you because you're not fleeing idolatry. You're sitting in it. Don't expect God to save you out of it. He's made every way for you to escape, but you got to choose to take the way of escape. Brothers and sisters, the good news is God always opens the mountain pass for you when you need it. The bad news, the challenging news is you have to take the mountain pass. You have to leave. You have to go. And that's true in, in life. You know, you you could have a you could have a friend that you're trying to help get in shape and physically healthy. He say, "Hey man, I want to help you to work out. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna buy you a Equinox membership. I'm gonna buy you great great looking workout clothes. I'm gonna get you a stationary bike. I'm gonna get you books on how to eat right and how to cook. I'm gonna do everything I can and give this all to you." And then you go over to his house and you see him sitting on his couch eating Cheetos. You're like, dude, what's going on? He's like, oh yeah, you know, I just like my Cheetos. No matter what you do for that person, if he doesn't want to get healthy, he's not gonna get healthy no matter how much you provide for him. Just like in a marriage. As a pastor, as a counselor, I believe that there is, that any marriage, no matter how bad, how broken it is, can be saved. I believe that, but the only condition is this, the couple has to want their marriage to be saved. If both or even one person does not want the marriage to be saved, it doesn't matter how amazing of a counselor I am, what wisdom I can bring, what books I can share with them, it's difficult, it's very difficult because they don't want it to be saved. Brothers and sisters, Paul's saying, therefore, another therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. You will see that verse 13 is true. There is nothing supernatural, nothing that has taken a hold of you that isn't common. The Holy Spirit gives you the power to overcome, but you can't sit there in the idolatry. Get out of that temple, flee it. And you will see the grace of God. So what are the, there's a two-step application here. Two things that we do based on what Paul is saying. First, the first step of this is number one, and this may be the hardest one, you need to recognize the evil desire within your heart. Don't try to cover it up with your church attendance, your Bible reading, your serving, all of those things. Recognize any place in your life where there is an evil desire that is unchecked, evil desire that you are trying to justify and hold on to in your life. Maybe you're saying, "God, I will, I will be a missionary to the ends of the earth as long as I get to keep doing this." If there's anything like that in your life, any idolatry, any lust, testing of the Lord, complaining, whatever else it might be, be honest. Be honest and call it out for what it is. Yes, God. Yes, God. Underneath the surface, I desire this evil in my life. That's number one. And the second application is choose to flee. Make the changes in your life that you need to begin to take a step out of that temple towards the will of God towards what is pleasing to the Lord, begin to move in that direction and you will see the power of God helping you all along the way. Let me give you a couple of examples of this and then I will close with communion and um, and worship. Um, You know, for me, and I've shared this before, if you've been around for a while, about my, my own personal experience of planting this church with a bunch of you, some of you from Radiance, about six years ago or so, and, um, you know, planting a church is a lot of work. Planting a church is a lot of work, and some of you guys were there just working and grinding it out together with me, but um, about a year and a half, two years in to planting this church, um, you know, I, I began to experience this tightness in my jaw, maybe some type of TMJ or something like that. I began to experience kind of like a mild headache, like pressure in my temple in this area. And um, this was really alarming for me because I, I, I never have that happen. I've always prided myself on being a really hard worker. I work hard. I serve the Lord. I used to say that, oh, sabbaticals are for, for people who can't hack it in ministry. You know, like, oh, that's... Yeah, sorry, Susan, You know, but um, I, I don't believe that anymore. But I used to think like, I can just work hard and I can... I can grind through it, but then when I started experiencing these things in my, my jaw and my head, I, I began to get worried and realized that things were, were really bad. And, and what was happening was that these manifestations were not just from hard work, not just from hard work. I know ministry can be hard work, but what was going on was there was an evil desire underneath, which was, I need to prove myself as a pastor and as a human being, my worth comes through the success of this church that was the idol actually that was underneath there i'd wanted to plant a church for a long time and i could i could say it's in the name of god you know it's for the glory of god and 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 i do think that that was in there but there was also an idol in there that was really big and it was this is how i get my sense of self-worth people validating me people looking at me and saying oh you're a great pastor Look at you. Look at your church, how successful it is. That's where, that was my idol, my idol image, what people thought of me. And, and when things were in flux, when sometimes, you know, you have a bunch of people come one week and the next week the numbers drop and then I'll be anxious about that. Oh my gosh, when people don't like the church, when people don't come anymore, it's gonna mean I'm a failure if this church fails. It became about me. There's that idolatry There. I could have, what I could have done is I could have said, ah, no, 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 Ulysses. You're serving the Lord with all of your heart. You're just tired. Just, just push through it. I could have chosen to do that, but I know what would happen eventually is I would have began looking to other things for outlets from the stress of ministry. I might have ended up in moral failure. I might have just quit the ministry eventually one day because eventually that whole house of cards would have collapsed. Maybe I would even have been disqualified from the race. I don't know. But by the grace of God, by the grace of God, I decided I'm not, I don't wanna go down that path. So the first thing that I had to do was I had to recognize that I'm not okay. I had to do that. It was hard for me because I prided myself in being somebody strong and that I can do everything. I had to say to myself, you know what, I'm not okay. I had to tell my wife, Christine, honey, I'm not okay. That was hard for me to do because I want her to view me in a certain way as capable, as being able to handle everything. I had to tell her, I'm not okay. I had to be honest. I had to confess to her. I had to confess to people that I wasn't okay. I signed up for a nine-month soul care program here in the Bay Area for pastors and ministry leaders that were, were feeling like they're on the edge of burnout where they, they were not doing well. And I went to that and I was in a cohort for nine months. We met twice a, twice a month. And there, over and over, I was, be, I was able to tell people, I'm not okay. I want to get well. I confessed that to my brothers and in AMI, to other pastors. I became more open about this. You know what happened by the grace of God over time, and I am still a huge work in progress in this area. I still want people to think well of me, but by the grace of God, I am overcoming this idol in my life more and more day by day where I'm realizing that it is not about me, but it is about the Lord. That even if I were to fail here, I am loved by God. I'm a child of God. And that, that idol is being broken down. And by the grace of God, I'm becoming healthier and there's a less of a chance of me being disqualified. But it came through recognition and honesty about it and then taking steps to flee that place rather than continue on in it. Second example and illustration from my own life was my, my struggle with pornography. For so many years of my life, when I was uh, in kindergarten, that was when I first was exposed to pornography. I found a stack of Playboys in, in a drawer in my house that was my dad's. And that was when I ex- got exposed to it. Now I, I bring the magazines to school. I show other kids. It was so bad. I even went to Catholic school. It was really, really bad. And then throughout my, my, my adolescence and with the advent of the internet uh, and even needing the power through that 26K modem, I would do it to access pornography. That, that showed commitment back then but it was, it was in my life for many, many years, first half of my life. And, um, and it was, it was a deep, deep issue. And, you know, uh, and even when I became a Christian in high school, there were, there were times where I began to realize, Hey, this is not a good thing. This is not pleasing to the Lord. And, you know, I, I read verses like first Corinthians 10 here, verse 13. It's like, God, God will, God will provide a way out. God can help me to overcome, but I don't know if, like you, and I'm sure in the room this size, are many of us men and women who may, who may struggle with this even, even now. There were times where I held on to this verse and I thought, God, is going to help me to overcome. And, and I would pray and I would wonder why I couldn't overcome because I would fall into it again and again and again. And I would just feel so beat up and I would feel like this is useless. I would feel like, God, I'm worthless. I'm terrible. I'm despicable. And what is wrong with me? I don't deserve to be your son. I would berate myself. And it was a terrible, terrible place to be. But, you know, what, what, what happened as well is God began to give me victory. How? Well, one, when I began to really recognize the evil desire, and, and, and I know I knew it was bad, but recognizing that, okay, this is a really serious thing, and it's not just going to be made up by going to church and by serving or doing an outreach event. No, this is something in my heart that I really, really need to deal with. And then I needed to take the mountain passes that God put there for me, rather than just saying, God, I'm so sorry, I won't do this again. But I, but th- I began to realize there are mountain passes here for me, and I need to begin to take them. And one of them was I, needed, I realized there were brothers in my life that I can confess my sin to. That was really hard. It was very embarrassing. But through confessing to them about my sin and my struggle, that brought a freedom, that brought this sense of hey, I don't need to hide this and and more power to be able to overcome. I took that mountain pass. My brothers would say, hey, you can call me anytime. And I would. Sometimes I'll call them late at night if I was struggling. I took the mountain pass of making that call. Even at times when I didn't want to, I would make that phone call. I took the mountain pass of installing accountability software into my computer. You heard that? That was a mountain pass. Because I, you know, I was like, oh God, do I really? If I do this, I'm really, really kind of, you know, cutting off access to the temple for myself in some ways. Not that it's completely foolproof, but uh, he's gonna get this report. If I looked at this site, I was like, oh my gosh. But it was gonna really help me, I knew that. So I took that mountain pass and, and I got that accountability software. God gave me the mountain pass of giving me $10 a month in my pocket that he used to pay for the accountability software. God gave me mountain pass after mountain pass after mountain pass after mountain pass. I just had to choose to take them. I had to choose to, to flee, to take the actual steps. And by the grace of God, God brought so much deliverance and, and, um, and um, victory over that area in my life. But I had to take the mountain pass. Maybe, brothers and sisters, for you, maybe it's a different situation. Maybe the evil desire is something else. Maybe it's something I didn't talk about. Maybe you don't even know how to flee. Maybe you're there, you you recognize, hey, I know there's evil desire in my heart. I know this is not okay. Maybe you don't even know how to flee. Well, I don't know what your situation is, but I'll say one thing you can do is you can confess that to a brother or a sister around you. You can do that. That's one thing you can do, which may be hard. You can take the mountain pass that your brother or your sister is holding open for you, saying, come, come out this way. And that will bring freedom from shame. That will bring... the the mountain pass of church community into into your life because the Bible says bear one another's burdens and we're not meant to go through all these things alone. Maybe that's one thing that you can do even today to say, God, yeah, okay, okay. I am going to begin to flee one step at a time so that I can experience victory.